Welcome to Creative Adventures with Rosa Lewis. In this episode, I talk with my partner, David Lassiter. David had spent over 18 months on long-term retreat, mostly in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. He talks in depth about these retreats from the practical details of what you can expect, some of the emotional turmoil that can emerge, and some of the more existential questions. Hope you enjoy! Okay, so we were chatting about how there's not that much content about long-term retreat. You don't hear that much about it. And you've spent quite a lot of time, a very long time on retreat. And we just thought it'd be cool to chat about that and yeah, see what comes out of it. So you want to start by introducing yourself and saying a little bit about just giving the context of maybe your journey up to the point of what brought you to want to go on long-term retreat. So my name is David. I am originally from the US and now live in Amsterdam. I grew up with a Buddhist father. He was in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and I would used to go to the Tibetan Buddhist community with him in Maryland. And so there was a way where like being surrounded by monks and deities and religious practices was like normalized for me in in a way when I was quite young. But I also had a bit of a difficult relationship with my father. So I think as I got a bit older, like when I reached my teenage years, there was a way where that all felt a bit fraught and very associated with him. And so I sort of pushed it all away and I had a very secular materialistic worldview and honestly thought religion was that kind of opiate for the masses kind of thing. Like it just, it, it didn't appeal to me at all. I think I now see that I had quite spiritual interests at that point in my life, but I was essentially pursuing them through things like literature and music and films. And I was I was kind of getting in touch with what I now think of as very spiritual qualities, yeah, through art. And I, I went to school to uh, study film and English liter- literature, both of which for me were very much about storytelling and about humanity and about what is what is it to be human and what are we doing here in this world? What is life? How, how to make good use of it? How to live well? What's meaningful? These are the kinds of questions that I was, I guess, sort of plagued by as a, as a young person and was trying to find answers in art and media. I lived in Los Angeles for a while. I was working in the film industry. Yeah, it's tempting to say I was living a very secular, yeah, secular material life. But at the same time, like I said, I was really committed to the exploration of my own humanity. And um, I was writing and I was yeah, making films that felt very personal and very intimate. And then some friends took me to a rave in LA. I didn't know what I was getting into at all. I was 25. And they gave me some MDMA and they said, oh, you know, we're all doing this. It'll be fun. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I trust these people. They're, they're good friends of mine. And something happened where it felt like my heart opened in a way that I had never really experienced before. And in a way, had always wanted. There was some sense that there was a level of peacefulness and love and connection that was possible. And I had sort of been looking for it for a long time. And then, you know, standing in line for this, you know, electronic music show, my heart was just bursting open with love and a level of stillness was in me. And I think there's a way where I look back at that experience now and think, well, you know, look, that's, that's just what MDMA is. But there was something very special about it. It showed me a wider capacity of consciousness or of experience than I had known before. And yeah, it changed something in me. I became much more interested in the mind and the heart in terms of how they shape experience directly. And a year or so later, I started 
exploring other psychedelics or psychedelics, mushrooms, and later LSD. And for about two years, I was pretty intent on trying to understand my own consciousness and the transformations it would undergo while taking psychedelics, both with friends, for example, at Burning Man, and we would host psychedelic get-togethers in our backyard in Los Angeles with friends. But I would also do my kind of my own research and, and I would I would dose on my own and I would try to take notes. And I was like, you know, reading the old Tim Leary and, and Ram Dass sort of notes and journals and just trying to understand what was known about the mind and the heart and the inner realms and, and how those were obviously things that it seemed like the Western world didn't have much to say about those topics. You know, I, I read um, some of w William James and of course his explorations with like nitrous oxide from the late 1800s was fascinating, but there just, there wasn't a lot in the world that I had been taught. There weren't a lot of sort of thought leaders in the West that seemed to have much to say about consciousness, at least not that I could find. And maybe the most important thing is that I started to have really deeply yeah, religious experiences, I would say, especially when I would take LSD, I would just have yeah, religious experiences, very, very Buddhist. What I, what I later discovered were essentially Buddhist flavored experiences. And I would have images of monks and I would imagine myself as a monk in the Himalayas. And there was a way where it all felt very esoteric and mysterious and also very intimate. There was a kind of a homecoming in it that was both very peaceful and profound, of course, also very mysterious and nebulous, but it felt like finding a part of myself that, yeah, had sort of been hidden and was, was very much in need of being found or rediscovered. And around that time, I was about 27 or 28, I, I realized that I wanted to take a break from making films in Los Angeles and go travel for a while. And I just had an impulse or an inkling that going to Asia and exploring there, exploring meditation, perhaps Buddhism, just going to an unfamiliar place and getting my feet wet, so to speak, in another culture seemed very attractive. I, I think I wanted to really get away from the familiar. And so I just booked a one-way ticket to Japan originally. I didn't, I, I sort of wanted to travel a bit, but I knew I wanted to be in Asia, I guess, Eastern Asia. And also then I made my way later to, to India and Nepal, but I just knew I wanted to be in a foreign place and give myself a chance to explore consciousness and my own mind more deeply. So I left Los Angeles in the fall of 2014 with an unknown return date, and that trip ended up lasting about six years. Nice. Where did you first go on retreat and what sort of drew you there? So a friend of mine, one of my closest friends in LA, had given me my first sort of meditation book, spiritual book maybe of any kind, was the Zen book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, by Shinryo Suzuki, which is a lovely, poetic, and as many things in Zen are, a bit hard to decipher, a bit incomprehensible. But I loved reading it. It was like fun. It was it was inspiring. It moved something in me. I was poking around in monasteries in Japan, but it wasn't at all obvious how to get involved in meditation there. I didn't have any clear entry points. I didn't really know what I was looking for. I didn't, really, didn't even really know what to look for. And while I was in Indonesia, I was in Bali, and I had an experience that was profoundly psychedelic and spiritual in nature, and I was completely sober and just sitting watching the sea. And there was a way where it really shocked me because it was like I was used to those states being connected to yeah psychedelics or mind-altering substances of some kind, and it like it really surprised me and it really changed my understanding again of sort of what the mind was. And it was also very profound and extremely peaceful and left me with a yeah a really a renewed sense of wonder with life. And I'd been reading a bunch of Rumi. Oh yeah, I was reading a lot of really reading a lot of Rumi at the time and and Rumi talked about fasting a lot. So I, I took a I took a, a day and a night to fast and be silent in the wake of this experience and it became very clear to me that I needed to go and meditate. I, I don't know exactly why that was what came up, but that's what came up. It just became very obvious that I needed to go spend time in a monastery. So I started looking online. I had travel plans to go to Malaysia next. And it just so happens that there was a Theravadan Buddhist monastery connected with Pa'auk Sayadaw, who's a Burmese teacher, uh, a, a sort of a very famous 
Burmese teacher. I didn't know any of this at the time, but I, I learned this later. So I signed up for a five-day retreat thinking 10 days seemed like a lot. The, the Goenka retreats were also in the neighborhood, but I thought, ah, oh, 10 days seems like a bit, a bit much. So I'll do five. I went there. It was the first time ever visiting a monastery, so I had to kind of learn all the rules and rituals. And of course, Theravadan Buddhism is quite different from, from Tibetan Buddhism, so there was like a lot of just new information. But we were doing concentration practice, basically shamatha practice. They, they uh, are mostly teaching practice based on the jhanas. Uh, I, I didn't know any of this at the time. But I just sat down and started focusing on my breath. And after five days, I was so enthralled that I stayed for just under a month. I stayed for like three and a half weeks. And every day it just felt like, I mean, I was just dripping with excitement, enthusiasm. It was hard. It was really hard. You know, it was very emotional, ups and downs. There wasn't a, a formal teacher there at the time. So it was basically just monastics and some other yogis practicing there. So we would sometimes chat together, the yogis, and there was a chance to have a bit of a Q&A with the teachers. And I read a lot. There was, there was a good library there. So I was reading a lot of Theravadan literature and just like having my first immersion into Theravadan Buddhist world, which would become my home for the next six years or so. And I walked away with an extremely clear sense that the most interesting exploration of all was the exploration of the mind and of the inner realm, and that I was just wanting as much of that as possible. And so I guess that really jump-started my, my experience. And even though I never returned to the Pa'ak sort of approach, there was a way where it whetted my appetite yeah, and just left me really excited for what more I might discover. Yeah, nice. And where did it lead you next? Yeah, so this was still in the early, this is the first year of traveling still. So I was just kind of bopping around. I went to Thailand. I, I did a short treat up in the north of Malaysia as well with a different teacher, different flavor. Like it was short, it was like eight days. So just another experience. I was trying to meditate on my own. I was just kind of stumbling around. I didn't have any clear guidance. I was just kind of, you know, I had a Kindle. So I was like, you know, downloading a lot of Kindle samples, trying to figure out what was good. You know, getting immersed in the, all the discussions around Buddhism, but didn't yet have any sort of Dharma friends, didn't have any people that I could really talk to about these things. And, you know, I think probably like many young Dharma people and maybe many, many young Dharma men more specifically, I was sort of fascinated by the notion of enlightenment and arahatship and, and Buddhahood and what do these things mean and what do they refer to and are they real and like, what? yeah, what does it all mean? And I remember I was in Thailand and in a fit of frustration, just really confused about all of it. I just Googled the phrase known arahats. In arahat, if, you, if you're not aware, is, is sort of the, the name for a fully enlightened person or being in the Buddhist, in the Theravada Buddhist cosmology. You know, and then you end up on these Buddhist forums and there's, you know, people, different people talking about their different teachers and oh, so-and-so is rumored to be uh, an arahat and so-and-so is rumored to be an arahat. Of course, in Buddhism and probably in all religions, these things are not really publicly known. There's no way to really, I don't know if there's no way to verify, but it's just not talked about openly. And at the bottom of one of the posts, somebody had written in parentheses in a whisper and Daniel Ingram. And I was like, what? That's weird. Like that's a, that's a Western name. So I just thought, okay. So I just Googled Daniel Ingram and lo and behold, within five minutes, I had a copy of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha on my Kindle. And I looked through the index, what's that called? The table of contents. And I, I was in shock. I was like, this is so much what I've been looking for. This is, so, I still get chills now. This is so much like a comprehensive and detailed and direct discussion of the topics that I'm so curious about. I think it's hard to underestimate the impact that that had on what followed for me because one, I think I read the whole book, which is not a small book. I read it in probably a week. I just ripped through it. I inhaled it basically. I read, I think most of the contents on his website. It was so cogently written. It was so comprehensive. It was so relatable. It felt very grounded and intelligent and sensitive and brave. And 
yeah, it really inspired me to believe that what I was looking for was achievable and is out there and that people who seem like relatable humans are doing this. And it really let a fire under me. On Daniel's website, he makes reference to a meditation center in Nepal called the Pandita Rama Lumbini. And he says specifically, if you're looking to really go down this particular rabbit hole of the progress of insight as taught by Mahasi Sayadaw, which is the practice that he primarily focused on, or at least focused on in, in his book. If you really want to be led sort of in a masterful way down this particular practice path, then my recommendation is that you look up uh, Sayadaw Vivekananda in Panditarama Lumbini. And so I took that very seriously. I got in touch with the meditation center. I got an email back from Sayadaw within a week or so and said, you know, very earnestly, and I think with probably very little regard for how these things are done customarily, I said, I would like to come for a three-month retreat and I'd like to attain, attain stream entry. <laughs> and of course, that was very sincere at the time. And Saida, in his great wisdom, responded saying, you know, you're welcome to come and practice with us since it's your first retreat. Maybe we think a month is a good time to start. And if it's going well, you can extend. And just for reference, uh, try to let go of any uh, aspirations or achievement-based thinking because experience shows that those things tend to lead in the opposite direction <laughs> of the goal. And so I thought, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> and assumed that like many other things in my life, I could just sort of use intensity and willpower and uh, stubbornness to kind of muscle my way through whatever was ahead of me. I was, of course, <laughs> proven wrong. And so I was, of course, very right in the end. But uh, that sort of laid the groundwork for me to go on my first three-month retreat in the fall, winter of 2015. Yeah, nice. I think I hear what you're saying about being proven wrong, but I think there is some truth in it as well. I think having a really fixed goal has some negative sides to it, but having that like fire lit and being inspired and being like, I really want this, I can relate to that a lot. And I think a lot of people who I connect with and are drawn to me, there's a sense of like, I really want this thing. And there's things you were saying, the stubbornness can actually be beneficial in certain ways as well. I mean, I absolutely agree and I think that in a way those things are what carried me through much of the time that I was traveling and meditating. I mean I, sp I spent in the end about 18 months in intensive solitary silent you know 14 16 hours a day retreat so I was clearly very inspired to do the damn thing. I think my first retreat was an extremely rocky lesson in realizing that striving and sort of grasping energy. It's so tempting when you start practicing, assuming you don't have a great deal of wisdom in your being already, our mind tends to gravitate towards specific things and fixed ideas and, and wants to sort of contract around things. And that's, of course, the exact opposite of what this practice is trying to get your mind to do. So there was something quite specific around having a, a material goal in mind that I think was very counterproductive. But I agree, and they, they even talk about in, in, in Theravadan Buddhist world, I'm actually not forgetting the poly word but you know this kind of idea of spiritual urgency mm -hmm. or, or having a fire under your ass yeah. uh, spiritually uh that was very alive for me and in that way I, mem I remember you know i'm jumping ahead now but when i went in for my third retreat i really had this feeling of like i will not leave until the work is done yeah and that was true i got what i wanted to get through that retreat but it was very different by the time i came for my third time around it, it was an understanding of the tenacity required but tenacity feels a bit different than trying to grab a hold of something it was just like a willingness i remember I had this image of i'm just gonna stand in the middle of the road and let whatever is coming hit me at full speed mm -hmm. and knock it out of the way and that was like a willingness to yeah, to i guess face experience directly yeah it's interesting the mastering the core teachings of the buddha but like the joke is that or the analogy is that in the film upstream color it's like a, a sort of psychedelic 
kind of sci-fi film Hmm. essentially it's like a bunch of people who are stuck in a system and bound by fate and there's a book well eventually that becomes the key that they figure out they're all linked through this book Mm -hmm. and yeah the joke is that the master of the quad teaches the buddha is it's that book because it's there's a way in which it's almost like so many people have read it and it's been quite a pivotal thing in their journey and i think different people get different things from it i got very different transmission than you did i think but yeah the power of that clarity groundedness like laying it all out in a very straightforward way Mm. was super powerful but i think yeah of everyone i know you've definitely had the closest sort of ah this actual system is the thing and really going for that and going down the theravadan buddhist road and fully walking that path so do you want to talk about what happened next or yeah so when you say that it what comes up is I've always had a fairly strong intellectual side and a sort of analytical side and a part of me that just naturally gravitates towards maps, models, spatial visualizations. I just, I seem to gravitate towards those things anyway. I used to talk explicitly about how much I love maps, like more geographical maps, but also maps and models. And so there was just something extremely enticing, mysterious, esoteric about the idea that there's these 16 stages known as the progress of insight, which are almost like a universal meta pattern in human consciousness and like maybe even the universal meta pattern, depending on who you ask. So that itself was just a very good match for my personality and disposition. I think early on I tried to convince everybody that this was like the only way. And of course that's not how I see it anymore, but it just felt like something clicked in terms of my personality, the way my consciousness works, the maps, the models, the stages just seemed like the carrot that I need to get really excited about practice. So I basically tried to do whatever preparation I could think of. I started my own, what I thought was Mahasi style practice. I honestly, at this point, could not tell you what I was doing. I'm sure I was not doing the practice though. I was doing something. I was certainly sitting for a long time with my eyes closed. And I knew it was gonna be cold in Nepal. I knew they were gonna feed me. I knew I was gonna have a place to sleep. Beyond that, I didn't know much. I hadn't spoken to anybody who had done this before. I remember I read Bill Hamilton's book called Saints and Psychos paths, which is probably to this day, the most detailed description I'd heard sort of in published form of somebody talking about their retreat experiences. My understanding is that Bill spent something like seven or eight years total on retreat. A lot of that time, I think in Burma, but I just didn't know what I was getting into. Honestly, I'm somebody who for better and for worse has gotten a lot done under pressure. I just resort to sheer willpower. I just get things done. And it's allowed me to accomplish quite a lot, but it's always stressful and intense and takes a lot out of me. And I think I brought that energy unconsciously or consciously perhaps into the retreat. So Pandita Ramalumbini is a, uh, I guess kind of medium-sized retreat center in the compound of Lumbini, Nepal. And Lumbini is the historical birthplace of the Buddha. So it's a pilgrimage site. So it's quite a quiet and, and beautiful space. It's a, it's also a nature sanctuary. There are many beautiful birds there. In the dead of winter, it's quite cold. It's it's foggy. It's kind of lower plains in Nepal. And it's very foggy there. So you get this kind of, you get this kind of bubble feeling like you're kind of in inside a, a, a little, yeah, a little world of your own. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect in terms of other yogis, in terms of the rhythm. I just went, I just went and I thought, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Straight away, you know, was handed a, a pamphlet with the instructions for how to practice. The format of Mahasi style retreats is you are instructed to basically alternate an hour of walking practice with an hour of sitting practice with an hour of walking practice, hour of sitting practice. You have two meals a day, about six hours of sleep a night, and you're basically practicing all day. You know, it's minimum 10 hours. If you do the the full schedule, which you're of course encouraged to do, it's between uh, 12 and 14 hours of practice a day. And with a 
a brief Dharma talk in the evening. Three times a week, there would be live discussion and Q&A with the teachers. And then you have a five or 10 minute daily interview where you basically report on your practice and the teachers use their intuitive and direct you know, uh, understanding of the progress of insight to basically map and model your progress as a yogi. The tricky thing is that from many teachers' perspectives, the less the meditator knows about the progress of insight, the better. So there's a way where I think for them, Daniel's book is actually a bit of a thorn in their side. So you get, the, you get these very eager meditators like me who've read the book, think they know the material, and basically become very difficult to teach because you know it's very easy to self start self-diagnosing and thinking you're here and trying. Just the mind, especially if you have an analytical mind, can get really involved in trying to figure out essentially where you are, where you want to go, what has to happen. My mind certainly was obsessed with those kinds of things. And it's just not really helpful, especially when you're just starting to practice. It's like the last thing you need to be doing is thinking about those details when you just need to develop some basic skills in mindfulness and concentration and tranquility and getting your body to calm down and your mind to calm down and, and clarifying your observation powers. So, I mean, the first few weeks were extremely rocky for me. I was practicing like a bat out of hell, like just a madman. I was having all kinds of ups and downs. I mean, really euphoric experiences, really harrowing experiences. After about the fifth week, I, I nearly left. I, I went through a phase in my practice where I, I actually thought I was haunted. I've never been somebody who believes in ghosts, but I was just having this extremely fearful experience walking around all the time with the sense that there was some entity a witch specifically that was trying to get inside of me or take me over in some way. And I basically said to, to Saida Vivekananda, I, I think I need to leave. I don't even feel like I'm practicing. I'm just walking around. I feel like I feel like a tattered flag. You know, he looked at me very kindly and he said, oh, why don't you stay another week and, uh, and we'll see. Uh, he seemed to have faith in what I was doing. And I stayed. And within that week, I had a quite a, a, a deep breakthrough in the practice and there's a way where I knew the I, I knew intellectually the different stages of the progress of insight but going through them directly was something very different and very intimate and, and Daniel's book is is technically very accurate but I think there's no way to prepare yourself for uh, what profound fear or the feeling of uh, dissolving or dying or the amount of physical and emotional pain that you can go through in the early stages is really like directly. And so I think it was a pretty rude awakening for me in terms of just what it was like to actually be with my own body, mind, psychology experience uh, directly. I was aware that I was sort of moving through the different progress of insight stages. And I was certainly kind of sneakily trying to keep track of those things because I found it interesting and exciting. But I think the main lesson from that first retreat was that I was pretty underprepared for just how tumultuous it was going to be especially when I got into later in the progress of insight, there's a stage called reobservation, which is sort of famously called the roll up the mat stage where people basically just go home because it's too difficult. And I spent about four or six weeks, basically the last half of my retreat, just getting absolutely smashed by what are called the hindrances, just incredible restlessness, incredible amounts of anger. Like I've never experienced in my life. I mean, just boiling with anger over the most abstract seemingly inconse inconsequential things. There's, there's this thing that I've heard Joseph Goldstein refer to as yogi mind, where your mind can just become absolutely obsessed with the most incredible details. 
and I just didn't have any context or, ex or reference points for any of it. I suffered tremendously. I spent a huge amount of that time resisting what I was experiencing, hating it, wanting to leave, feeling incredible shame for what I was feeling, feeling like I was failing, feeling like everything was going wrong, like I was a failure, like the retreat was a failure. Like it just, the amount of shame I went through, the amount of physical pain, the amount of grief and yeah, the anger was a lot. It was a lot of anger. It just wasn't at all clear to me that these things were part of the practice. I remember specifically having an interview with Saida at some point. It was fairly late in the retreat. And I started to report how much of these things were coming up. I, I guess this is, this is just personal insight that takes time to mature. But it took me a long time to understand that those things really were a part of the practice and not just getting in the way of the practice. And of course, they are called the hindrances. So there is a truth to them hindering progress in your meditation. But they are, of course, things that just need to be faced and confronted and felt and understood through your mindfulness practice or through one's mindfulness practice. And so I remember bringing these things up inside. I have this big smile saying, ah, you're finally starting to report, you know, all your hindrances. And I thought, oh, great. I was supposed to be saying this to you all along, huh? I guess it was a big you know, wake up call is in the right term. It's just, it was a big encounter with, I guess, a lot of painful emotions that I had just not been willing to feel before or not able to feel before um, that had been repressed. And yeah, I had some very profound tastes of yeah, a bit of equanimity, some certainly some very exciting sort of spiritual fireworks during the kind of more exciting stages of the practice, the arising and passing, for those of you who know uh, these references. It was overall a very rich experience, but it left me feeling like I think a bit off a bit more that I can chew here. I need to slow down a bit and just respect this process a bit more. I left feeling pretty profoundly dysregulated, confused, a bit disturbed. I remember uh, one of my best friends came to visit me in Nepal afterwards. And I was just a bit of a wreck. It's also quite hard when you leave Lumbini. There's, you just kind of go back into the world. There's not really a way to transition back out of it. And so I had really no context for what it was going to be like to go from having been in silence on my own for three months to suddenly being in noisy and very busy and dusty and chaotic India and Nepal. And I struggled a lot with that that first time leaving retreat. Each time I've left retreat, Subsequently, I think I've gotten a little bit better at how to do that reacclimatizing process, but it's never easy. It's quite an abrupt transition on your nervous system and on your sort of, on the sensitivity you've been developing on retreat. And I left that retreat with a real conviction that I wanted to do more, but that I needed to essentially refine my toolkit quite a lot because I had gone in with something like a sledgehammer and realized I needed something more like a very fine scalpel or something similar similarly refined. So the last thing I remember from that retreat, or a, a thing that stands out from the end, is I had a small chat with Saida at the end. And I just said, in, in dismay, you know, I just think I need to do a meta retreat, meta loving kindness uh, practice retreat next, because I could not believe how much self-hatred came up in this practice for me. And I fully expected him to say, ah, yeah, you know, it sounds like a great idea. It sounds like you should go do some meta. And what he said was, oh, at least you're noticing it. And that really stood out to me. There's a way where to this day that that is, has felt like one of the more profound pieces of pointing out about this practice is that it's revealing something that is there in you. And, and it's not that it's good or that it's bad, but that you're actually making contact with these, yeah, hidden and more difficult aspects of the mind. And that was intriguing. There was something intriguing about that. Like, oh, wait, this is... It's not like it's supposed to be happening, but it was some sense of like, oh, I'm not doing it wrong. <laughs> but I would spend hours agonizing about whether or not I was doing the practice right. 
and it was like an obsession. And I have, I have quite a strong perfectionistic streak in, in me. And there was clearly something compounding there. But I would spend yeah, hours agonizing and rereading the instructions and really trying to figure out, like, am I doing it right? Literally on the last day of 90 days of practice, I still had my, this mind going, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? I think at this point, I had finally understood, okay, this is just a mental state. I can just observe it. It's just doubt. But it was quite a rude awakening to the sort of inner landscape of my anxiety and fear and self-hatred and it was a big personal confrontation uh confrontation with with existence i guess so like i said i, I left feeling a, a bit battered also inspired but i think in the short term uh yeah pretty pretty badly battered yeah there's something about the subtle move with the hindrances specifically where it's almost like they're hindrances when you buy into them so mm-hmm. like restlessness mm-hmm. it's like if you really just buy into the restlessness mm-hmm. and allow that to drive put the, the restlessness in the driving seat then it's really a hindrance. But if you can stay kind of say centered and present and just be with the restlessness, it's now about really just being with experience. And I think that takes a long time for people to, for that to click into place maybe, especially if they have a lot of doubt and self-hatred and things like that. I think there's something, when you were talking about the meta pattern of mm-hmm. consciousness, mm-hmm. there's a way in which I guess we've, you and I have talked about how our experiences are, are quite different. And I think that's maybe helpful to just share a tiny bit about that in the, the route I came in was from shadow work. So it was almost like the route of, ah, you, you go to the most difficult thing and you, you're present with it and you let it pass through and then it goes through. So it was almost like that was the core of my practice for ages. Mm-hmm. And then the more like you can just observe, that was like the mm-hmm. later realization for me and the sort of speeding it up a bit with that but I think that general sense when you realize that essentially the purpose of the practice is to be present with whatever's there to observe it to feel it to be with it in the body and not to distinguish between I want this bit and I don't want this bit or this bit is part of the practice and this bit isn't that's super powerful but then I also think you're touching on something else where you were saying with the draw to go on a meta retreat which is the more resource someone is the more capacity you have to do that practice so there's kind of like these different moving parts that I was just like picking up on as you were describing that where I was like ah these are things that if they're not sort of like explicitly brought in and shared with people within the container it could take people quite a long time to realize them for themselves i think that's absolutely true it's this is this is of course the the nature of schools and systems of thought and and sort of how different lineages develop i would say that within the mahasi schools generally speaking there's the belief that this one approach will naturally develop all the resources that one needs to do the practice more fully that essentially the necessary resources will emerge sort of when they are needed Mm-hmm. I think there is some truth to that. My, my experience is that that actually does happen to a degree. So after this retreat, I went to sit with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher and then did a month-long retreat with a different Mahasi-style teacher in Sri Lanka. And both of them had a much more, I guess, yin-style approach. I would say that the Mahasi-style is pretty famously pretty young. It's a very kind of martial lineage. It's very, you know, meditate without regard for life and limb or, you know, basically sit on the cushion until you die. It's really, it's a very austere, you know, kind of masculine transmission. And I think that that is, to some degree, being passed along by Saito Vivekananda and by Saile Bademanika, who's the other main teacher at the center. I also think that that's probably my disposition already. So there is a way where I probably needed to hear a bit more of that yin message. 
And it helped me a lot to go and sit with some other teachers who had a much more just kind of sit there and don't do too much. Don't try to get too involved with what's happening and just sort of lean back a bit. I think I was very leaned forward. Again, that's probably just my, also my personality, but just learning to sit back a bit. It felt like I basically went and sort of fine tuned my practice in, in other contexts because I felt like I just gotten too tight and too stiff and too austere on that first retreat. So while I didn't go explicitly on a meta retreat, it felt like I went and essentially softened my approach a bit, which turned out to be the right thing because when I went back the following winter to Lumini, honestly, I was so rattled by that first retreat that I thought, I don't think I can do another full three months. So I just signed up for a month, which the teachers there both had to raise their eyebrow about like, well, you know, only for a month, you know? But I said, look, I just need to re rebuild my confidence with the practice. So when I went back, something really clicked. And it was like, even though I was there only there for, I think even less than four weeks, I found myself moving through the same territory, the different stages of the progress of insight in a quarter of the time that I had spent on the first street. And it was, I think one, the familiarity helped, but two, it was just a willingness to be with the things that were difficult. I think it had taken me yeah, a while to sort of see that, but what you just said is absolutely right. The practice is to be present with whatever is actually happening, to be willing to let go of your preference. This is good, this is bad, I don't want this, I do want that. And I experienced that as sort of like, a, it's like sandpaper wearing away at the quality of resistance or the, the part of the mind that tries to resist and you're just like stone on stone just wearing away your stubborn resistance and preference for good bad right wrong this that until one becomes a very smooth vessel through which experience just glides and then the hindrances are just more things to observe they're more experiences to be with it can be quite interesting actually anger can be quite interesting restlessness can be extremely interesting if you just can be with it and it's funny because finally i went back and reread shinro suzuki's zen mind beginner's mind and he has this beautiful line where he talks about how early on in your practice you will encounter many weeds and you'll be very annoyed by the weeds in your garden. But later on, if you can learn to use your weeds as compost, then your practice will become very interesting. And this phrase, which was was meaningless to me, you know, whatever, five years before when I'd read it, suddenly became very interesting. And I started to relate to hindrances and difficult experiences as just weeds in the garden to compost. And it did feel like something very important happened there. I don't know if that same progression wouldn't have happened had I not gone and practiced elsewhere. But for whatever reason, it felt necessary to sort of go and... My tendency is to, is to aggregate systems of knowledge and thought. I tend to want to, want to get a wide sample size, a, a wide survey of what it is that I'm exploring. I was sort of fascinated by the different schools of Buddhism, the different approaches, the different philosophies, the different methods, the different practices. I was trying to make sense of it all. And I think I was just trying to get a, a feeling for what's out there. How are people practicing? Why are they practicing? And, and so by getting a, a wider, what is this? I'm, I'm like, as, as if I'm like touching different parts of the spider's web, getting a feel for different parts of the web, I was able to kind of synthesize a more gentle, open-hearted, open-minded practice, which think essentially set me up for the next several years of, of really focused practice where I, it felt like I was sort of syncing up with how to practice well and how to practice effectively. So that, that second retreat was, like I said, only about, yeah, I think it was less than, less than four weeks, but it basically brought me very close to the awakening experience that I was looking for. And, and it just gave me a lot of confidence that I could really do it and that it was worth doing. It's nice to hear about some of the specific from a phenomenological level, like mm -hmm. what was happening in your experience during these retreats. Yeah. It's almost like what was revealing hmm. itself to you. Uh, the main thing that comes up when you say that is something that I don't really understand, nor probably ever will really understand, is what the progress of insight is or why it seems to work. 
as well as it does. I get the impression that it's not, certainly it's not the same for everyone, literally. I get that it's also not nearly as vivid for some as for others. What I can say is that from spending a few thousand hours doing the practice myself, sitting in on other yogis' interviews over several years, it seems pretty undeniable to me that there simply is a pattern that when people do this specific practice, this attentional practice, which is really just continuous mindfulness. I, you know, there are many, I mean, essentially all Theravada Buddhist practices are rooted in mindfulness, or at least all Vipassana practices are rooted in mindfulness. Almost no one talks about the progress of insight explicitly. Of course, the Mahasi school and, and the Burmese lineages in, in general, because they're also Vasudhimaga scholars, many of the monks are, this is really their main roadmap. And it's always been a bit of a mystery to me as to why this phenomenology is so vivid in this practice and not in others. In the end, the best I've come to understand is that it's just a feature of when you do this specific style of practice, this sequence of events is just more obvious. And maybe also in part because you're being told to look for it, there's a way where it becomes a bit of a reinforcing loop. But I've also seen many meditators who I'm sure had no working knowledge of the progress of insight before doing the practice reporting details with an uncanny similarity to my experiences, to other people's experiences. I had a friend of mine who was a very devoted practitioner report to me, I mean, the most incredibly detailed experiences from her practice that were, I mean, tick for tick, what I'd experienced in a way where I, I, I just had to, I had to say that there's clearly something happening here on the level of repeatability and some kind of esoteric pattern that's playing itself out in consciousness. So just to sort of hold that as a framework, so as a beginning meditator, the ground you cover is the 16 stages of insight, which are the kind of classically laid out stages from the Vasudhimaga, which is an ancient commentary from, I think, I think it's maybe 100 CE. So it's not part of the Pali Canon, but it's sort of really, it's probably the most canonical commentary. And yeah, really held up as like one of the seminal texts for the, the Theravans, especially the Burmese. My experience on the first three retreats where I was really focusing on navigating the progress of insight was just seeing the different stages and the different ways that the different stages profoundly color my perceptual reality, one's perceptual reality. So, you know, for example, when you start meditating, things feel quite blurry and hazy. And you're just kind of like not sure what you're doing. It's like a bit uneasy. It's a bit uncomfortable. And then at a certain point, suddenly it's quite easy to sit and you can actually sit for quite a long time and it's very peaceful and more clarity comes into the practice. And that's like quite a surprise. And then that goes away. And then suddenly you're noticing these funny, very vivid linkings between causality. Like you'll really notice the relationship between an intention and a movement or the way a sound triggers a certain mental image or different kinds of causal, the, the way a, a physical sensation stimulates a mood or an emotion and then that goes away and then there's a, a period where suddenly everything is extremely like dynamic and crisp and like everything is changing all the time it's like it's like everything is like a is like a fluid membrane surface like sounds feel like these long threads of textures and, and physical sensations are extremely detailed again uh, and then everything's extremely painful for a while and you just hate everything and you hate the practice and you hate your life and you want to go home and you hate the teachers and everything sucks. And then there's this odd thing where suddenly things are happening on their own. So I remember very vividly I was doing a walk meditation and suddenly it was very obvious that I was not 
in control of my body anymore. And it felt like essentially being on autopilot and I had no control over the walking. <laughs> and it was extremely strange. It was exciting, but it was extremely strange. Just watching the body just walk itself back and forth and almost I was sort of like a trapped spectator, like, well, I hope whoever's walking this thing like, knows where they're going. You know, and this is like all stuff happening in the first like two weeks of practice. I mean, it was there's a lot of ups and downs, I guess. I guess the kind of the famous ones that maybe Daniel has made famous because he sort of waxes poetic about them. But like, for example, the the arising and passing, the fast arising and passing of phenomena is sort of a highlight stage because one, it's extremely fun. It's like you've been given a very exciting dose of LSD or mushrooms or whatever psychedelic sort of takes you to your most exciting spiritual place. I remember at some point like being pretty convinced I had certain psychic powers, which I think in that moment probably was partially true. I was able to essentially call up whatever insight knowledge I wanted to and basically go and live in that environment for a while. And it was almost like being able to control my inner landscape with an uncanny specificity, just in intention. And then the thing would emerge or moods or emotions or suddenly there was a certain pliability to experience that was very interesting, I'd say the least. You know, flashing lights and euphoric moods and visions of Buddhas and staying up until all kinds of hours of the night meditating and never wanting to sleep and not wanting to even eat and yeah just being on fire with practice that one's probably one of the most exciting ones and it's a place where a lot of people get stuck because it can feel like this is what practice is supposed to feel like this is sort of yeah this is it like you know we're here at the promised land you know and so a lot of people get stuck there sort of thinking they need to keep going in the direction of more excitement euphoria spiritual ecstasy the stage that comes after that is one of the more challenging ones because everything gets really foggy and stressful and everything is like dissolving and falling apart and like really messy and muddy. Your observation skills go to zero. It's almost like worse than when you started. So this is the dissolution stage. I tend to get a lot of physical anxiety. Like the body, I almost describe it as like animal fear. The body's just in a really shaky spot. A lot of bad digestion a lot of obsession with the body like falling apart, like hair falling out or nails, you know, clipping my nails. Like there's just a way where, you know, feeling like maybe I'm ill, like an obsession with, am I, am I ill? Uh, just a lot of un like unwellness is, is one of the major themes. I get a really strange body odor during that stage. Like it's not a nice stage. It's really tricky. And a lot of people get stuck here as well because it just takes a long time to develop the observation skills to kind of move out of that. Late on in the process, there is a lot of fear comes up. I now feel quite sure that the experience I had on that first retreat of being terrified and thinking I was haunted was just a part of the fear insight knowledge where basically your main experience just is fear. A lot of kind of worldly fear, fear of things, fear of sounds, fear of people, fear of yourself, fear of emotions. But then there's also this thing called Dharma fear, which is essentially a kind of instinctive aversion or, or, or a turning away from the fact that you're seeing over and over and over again that that phenomena experience is dissolving, disintegrating, falling apart collapsing is unstable and that there's something in a way inherently not nice about that asuba un unlovely is the word uh, like an unloveliness to experience that's the beginning of what daniel calls the dark night of the soul there's a way where i don't know how helpful that phrase is for me it's like i think there's a way where it can make it a, sound a bit too dramatic like the dark night just sucks like it's, they're just hard stages because the next one is misery misery tends to involve an incredible amount of physical pain yeah, very particular kinds of physical pain. I, I used to get this thing where one of my left index finger, this would happen for three retreats in a row, my left index finger would swell up to almost twice its normal size and it would have these incredible stinging sensations, like nonstop, almost like a swarm of bees in my finger. And it would be so itchy and so painful and I have 
absolutely no idea what it was. It would happen every time and it would just be so frustrating. You just have to sit there and just feel this crazy. And I even took pictures. Like, am I going crazy? Are my fingers different sizes? They were different sizes. I've looked at the pictures since. I have no idea what it was. I couldn't possibly tell you. It could have just been psychosomatic. But strange physical things. Really, really, really sharp shoulder pains that I've never experienced before or since. Sobbing inconsolably over. I couldn't tell you what. Oh, an incredible amount of boredom. Oh, yeah. Boredom is one of the toughest ones during misery. My experience is hour of sitting feels like an, an eon it's like you can't possibly imagine how long an hour is when when that kind of boredom sets in it's, it's sort of like slowly being pulled apart for an hour yeah that part's tricky at some point disgust sets in and disgust is kind of fun because disgust is is a lot about at least in my experience a lot about anger but there's a funny way where the most basic things become really repulsive like almost to a comical degree like I just wanted to kill everybody at the meditation center. Like at one point, Sila even asked, like, oh, do you have any intentions to, you know, to beat up any yogis? And I was like, you know, actually I did. <laughs> I remember like food tastes bad. Like there's a way you're like, get this, this food's all disgusting. Get it away from me. Once again, you don't like the practice. You don't like the teachers. You don't like yourself. You don't, you know, the sun's not shining right. The moon's not shining right. The birds are too loud. And everything's wrong with everything. But it's quite funny because when you start to sort of recognize how much of a, of a sort of like of a fuss your mind is making about everything. In a way, it can become quite funny. And there's also, there's, there's a funny thing where as you practice more, you start to realize that there's sort of substages. There's a substage somewhere in the disgust yana towards the end where your practice gets actually very sharp and there's a great deal of detail and, it, and it's very nice. It, it, it suddenly takes on a very kind of vivid quality and you can see, like I've had some very fascinating visualizations. They're very abstract, but they're like the perfect representation of all that is disgusting. And there's almost like a sort of gleeful amount of disgust. You can't really put it into words. It's it's like grotesque in like truly comical ways, like delightful Francis Bacon on acid. Like you just, it can't get more grotesque. And then the ninth stage is called Desire for Deliverance. And this is also a very tricky one. In in, in a way, the one that I sort of fear the most because it's, it's almost like my main experience is, is that I can't figure out what's going on. Like no matter what, whenever I'm in this stage, I just can't figure out what's happening why it's happening like nothing makes sense everything is so muddy and confusing and disorienting and you i just feel like i'm in a storm of tension and anxiety but like without any reference point for where to go how to escape like it's like it's like quicksand for the soul you just like cannot figure out what's going on and when it finally lifts and you get into the relative clarity of your observation you're like wow like once again have been completely hounded by desire for deliverance yeah it's interesting to think about like you said like what's the framing that is helpful for people i, I think the thing that is almost inherent in practice is that you're going through cycles and like what those cycles are depends on what the practice is where you yeah. are in yeah. what bit of experience you're focusing on that sort of thing yeah. but there's always yeah. a sort of circular process to things and i think like you were saying about the idea of like a dark night it's almost like i think there's a way of looking at it where you're almost when you're when you're looking it can be sort of like oh this is happening and this is happening and this is happening but when when you're really like immersed in the experience and mm -hmm. you've unlocked that sort of like presence and openness and kind of more open heartedness of being able to be with things. I think the the sort of shadow work component of it is more apparent mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it's almost like aspects of humanity, personal and impersonal, 
arising hmm. in your experience mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then you're becoming aware of them you're kind of mm -hmm. like processing the shadow in the way that you do personal shadow work and whether that stuff that is in the body held in the body in either physical or kind of energetic stuff or it's more like mental patterns pathways habit pathways things like that that are kind of like coming through it's almost like the shadows of experience um unearthing through you and by processing them and being willing to be with them and be willing to look at them feel them hold the space for them yeah it's almost like you're peeling back layers and getting lighter and freer and i guess when you're saying this what i what i see is and this is definitely a, f a function of having just spent a lot of time in this particular practice but what i see is that there's was a topic that i could spend a long time talking about so i'll try to keep it short but daniel talked about uh the fractal nature of the practice and the progress of insight and as i practiced longer it became very obvious to me that there were essentially many sequences of the whole progress of insight nest nested within each sort of phase of the practice and there's a very intuitive progression in the macro call it progress of insight from let's say the arising and passing where you're just excited by everything everything's exciting and novel and like you're sort of fascinated by it you have no distance from it you're just like well this is the coolest thing like wow and then also in disillusion you're just like this is the most horrible thing how horrible and by the time you get to equanimity there's a lot of spaciousness it's just like you're able to pro you're just able to hold space for okay euphoria is here okay or okay despair is here okay and you're able to kind of hold space for it. and it feels very impersonal like you say it feels very much just like another thing of the universe present and you're just on the sea as the waves come through and there's a way where each substage or each stage rather is defined by that same progression where for example if i go back to desire for deliverance early on the hopelessness the confusion the disorientation feels like a storm that you have zero distance from and you're just like getting tormented by it and then at a certain point there's enough clarity in the mind that develops to go like oh hang on almost like you remember to like be mindful <laughs> you're like oh yeah okay like mindfulness like great of course mindfulness and then you're like able to at least momentarily become mindful that oh this is an experience this isn't me it's like it's a thing that's passing through and it's like the more and more i remember specifically it's like i can remember the moments each time i'd be there it's like remembering how the mind begins to generate spontaneously generate the intention to stitch together more and more subsequent moments of mindfulness and then at a certain point, there is like enough momentum of mindfulness to recognize, ah, oh, this is an experience. Ah, oh, this isn't me. Oh, this isn't so bad. Oh, it's actually kind of interesting. And there's a way where like that spaciousness, it's almost like going from being completely fused with the, with the experience phenomenologically to having quite a spacious, impersonal relationship to it. And it's almost like the moment the mind learns that lesson, it moves to the next stage. And it's almost like each stage, I get some chills. It's like, it's a, there is a beauty in that process where it's like the mind like learns to see, observe, and accept naturally. At least that, that's how it appears. It seems to be happening spontaneously. And once it's learned to accept, like genuinely accept, when true equanimity about your experience arises, then lo and behold, the mind initiates a journey into the next phase. And there's a way where, like when you describe it, it feels like that is the right way to frame it linearly. But it's fascinating to see how the practice seems to somehow generate that experience, almost like reverse engineer that experience from the inside out by simply staying with, like all I'm consciously doing is being mindful or trying to be mindful. Yeah. And somehow the mind like naturally reorients to a more holistic, spacious, equanimous way of holding experience. And that to me is very mysterious. It's not at all intuitive that that's what would happen by simply being mindful continuously, which is sort of to me what the beauty of Vipassana and specifically maybe Mahasi style practice is, is you're just 
being mindful continuously as much as possible. And I think the metaphor I like to use is of like reading a long book. So if you say to somebody, okay, you know, read one page of the book. Okay, now tomorrow read another page of the book. And then tomorrow read another page of the book. I mean, reading a, a page of a book doesn't seem all that special. But if you've read a thousand pages, then you've actually gone on quite a journey. And the journey of the contents of where you've been is, is transforming quite dramatically. And so there's a way where, to me, the elegance is that there's something very mysterious and, and quite sacred, divine, magical. I don't quite know what the word is, but there's something quite profound about the way that the mind seems to naturally learn how to relate to its own experiences or or experience, let's say, with more wholesome attitudes, more patience, more spaciousness, more acceptance, more equanimity, more understanding, more gentleness. Like there's no part of me that's consciously trying to generate those states. They are simply emerging from the fabric of the mind as mindfulness becomes more continuous and concentration grows stronger and tranquility grows stronger. So there is something like self-organizing about the practice that I find extremely fascinating and remains very mysterious to me. Yeah, I think as you describe that, I get in touch with starting in the layer underneath. Like all those qualities you describe feel like qualities of the heart to me. There's like a connective quality, hmm. like fractal connective quality, self-organizing. Hmm. When you can touch something with love, it's almost like before the mind can kind of distort and fit things into boxes and categories and shapes and self-preservation. And, and then when you take that away and just allow things to be as they are, it's this kind of like self-organizing fractal. And I think that when you were describing the phases, I was very in touch with how the body does the same thing with, mm. with trauma. Mm. It's almost like if you can bring the trauma up in a space where it's going to get accepted rather than judged or shut down then it's like that thing plays out its energy and heals in a way and totally. i think i was very weird as you were describing <laughs> i remember being on retreat and i've heard a few people talk about this as well i think it seems to be a thing just getting in touch with really deep stuff that is just in human bodies things like fear of shitting yourself and that's just held in yeah. your body in yeah. the energy of your yeah. body from yeah. when you're a kid and you're learning not to yeah yeah just like shit yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was almost like just the layers of these patterns and energies and things we have in our body it's like there's i guess in the practice the main focus is the mind's element of it but it's also happening on a body level where there's things emerging out which are being held in a physical way and that like reorganizing process of it's almost like the image I have is of lots of things squeezed into funny spaces and parts of our bodies. Mm. And then it's like you take the lid off and it all like explodes out. And then it's sort of like once it's been allowed to not be constricted and held in shadow, shadow anymore, then it relaxes into its sort of like natural way of being with openness and spaciousness mm. around it. And it's not that the thing that is bad or difficult like completely goes away it's just you don't have the same constriction or mm. tightness around it you have a different relationship to it where yeah. it's just much more free-flowing and natural yeah when you say that i think i think as i'm thinking about the stage that i was describing it's like it's almost like you're being explicitly shown how painful contraction and being fused with your experience is hmm. you're like being bashed with like yeah this is how bad it gets when you like buy into all the stuff or if you resist or if you fight and here's the kind of like emergence into a much more peaceful way relating to your experience which is 
more gentle, more heartful, more spacious, more equanimous. But it's almost like you have to keep being shown because in my practice, especially in, in later retreats, so desire for deliverance, for example, is, is the place where if my practice was falling back, because the progress is not always linear in one direction, you practice definitely kind of pendulums back and forth in ways, I would always fall back to like this place. And I would almost, I have to kind of like dig myself out of the rut of this phase. And it was like, in a way, having to over and over again, relearn to be spacious and accepting around struggle and around difficulty and around like the anxiety that I would feel in that state. And it was almost like once I relearned that lesson, be like, oh yeah, okay, like it's okay. And then things would chill out. And then the practice would sort of start sailing again. There, there is like, there's something very mysterious where it's, you, t- you use this language of being shown things. Mm-hmm. And to me, it feels like the more I did the practice, the more I feel like the progress of insight is very explicitly showing you things. Like mm-hmm. re- it's like almost like hitting you in the face sometimes with with a sledgehammer. Like, but this is the lesson, yeah. <laughs> you know. And like, there's something really like oddly synchronistic, magical, and intuitive, and like almost devilish in terms of the level of precision of what you're being shown, and like the sense making that arises in the mind around these different lessons. All of that, I have absolutely no no theory or or, or, or or sort of model for. It just seems to be what happens. I, I don't know if everybody experiences it with that level of detail or even would frame it that way, but that certainly was how it was for me. Yeah, and it's almost, I think, something you were touching on there. It's, it's a thing which is almost like the deeper you go, the deeper it can go. It's almost like the more capacity you build for openness, spaciousness, equanimity, the deeper the, the pain or the difficulty or the challenging thing that can be shown. It's, it's tempting to say there's a way where the practice shows you more or less what you're able to handle at any given moment. Uh, sometimes a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes a bit less. But, but I think there's generally a wisdom to, to the process of, of, of being given what you can handle. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll just briefly maybe f- finish the, the, last, the last two phases since we're there. Like the, the last two phases in a way are kind of the most famous slash most infamous. And I, and I guess they kind of feel like the, the kind of expert levels of the, of the game like they're just the most challenging because what it is the last the second to last stage is called reobservation and essentially it's almost like everything that you've gone through in the last days weeks months coming back around for one last mail yeah. maelstrom but 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 like what i'm trying to think of the phrase that daniel uses in his book it's quite nice it, it, it's 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 like like maelstrom and howling banshee or something i mean it's like really really intense and yeah the image that side uses is, is as if uh you know a yogi may feel as if they've uh They've started to cross the Pacific Ocean in a dinghy only to find themselves in the middle of an enormous hurricane. It's like the volume gets turned up on the difficult things tenfold. So yeah, so the two things come up. One is the first half of reobservation is a bloody nightmare. It's just hard. It's just hard. It's just, it's just all of the hardest bits come and, and come with their knives out, basically. The second half of reobservation is maybe my favorite stage of practice. The mind gets extremely sharp. And some people might say this is equanimity, uh, you know, for, for the, for the, for the, for the progress of insight scholars, we'll save that debate for another day. Yeah. The mind gets extremely sharp and the three characteristics. So impermanence, suffering, and non-self come into focus in really incredible ways. And it feels like that's to me is, is a phase where the lessons come on really hot and heavy. That flat part feels quite a lot like a spiritual roller coaster with no brakes. Like you're just on a journey where the three characteristics are just like, all, it's, it's almost like you're eating them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's just all you see. The mind is extremely sharp. It feels a bit jangly. Like this way where the mind is almost like too sharp. That can be a bit painful. But like the speed of observation gets, I, I seem to have a very strong, like you came in with a lot of heartful qualities in your practice. I feel like I've come in with a great deal of investigative and sort of inquiry 
uh, process. I was, I was often told to actually do a little bit less. Oh, your mind likes to inquire a little too much, you know? So there's just a way where this mind loves to go fast. You know, it's 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 kind of like a, um, the, the metaphor is almost feels like your mind turns into like a depending on the day either like a gatling gun or like a like a, a laser focus like an electron microscope or you or you know or, or, or like a particle collider it's just like the level of detail and precision is extremely exciting and interesting and i'll, I'll not bore you with the details but uh i mean it feels a bit like trying to tell somebody about a dream you know it's a it's a little hard to describe but in any case the sense of richness is really vivid the sense of wow a lot of ahas and then the trickiest part i think of all in a way is learning to let all of it go, the ups and the downs. So then developing equanimity, which is probably, certainly for me, as somebody who doesn't seem to have a very equanimous disposition naturally, it's quite tricky training the mind to let go of the preferences even for the spiritual states. So letting go of the excitement of the highs and the lows and the euphorias and the horrific stuff. And it's a bit like trying to run up a hill that's very slippery and you run up a little bit and you slide back and you're up a little further this time and you slide back. You just keep sliding back and like getting onto what feels like a stable amount of equanimity where the mind really gets the message like everything's changing all the time everything is not stable and, and can't really be held on to and that itself is not really worth pursuing and then the fact that things are happening in a very out of control way the mind really finally seeing the three characteristics more deeply to the point where it develops a natural amount of equanimity towards experience and really starts to hold experience as just more phenomena, pain, pleasure, good, bad, up, down, clear, not clear. It's very counterintuitive because it feels like your practice is going to keep getting sharper and sharper and deeper and sharper and, you know, kind of an up only, up only practice. And the reality is practice gets a bit mundane. Like you're just sort of humming along and nothing's particularly exciting anymore, but nothing's bad anymore either. And in a way that's quite nice. But training the mind to be in a yeah, more relaxed and, and, and spacious attitude with regard to what's happening, including in your practice. Actually, not even really caring about what's happening in your practice. Like for a while, being obsessed with progress and obsessed with awakening. And then you get equanimity and you're like, well, oh, this is all right. Like nothing good, nothing bad. Like just kind of hanging out. And like there's a way where you do have to stop caring. This is, I think, where exactly where the thing that Saida wrote in that email about striving is kind of the enemy of, of, of this particular energy. It's just, it's a willingness to just really be in the flow of life accepting that this is what's happening right now this is what's happening right now this is what's happening right now it's just a very easy going I, I, I heard somebody on on the dharma overground which is uh daniel's uh sort of dharma forum describe it as you know um walking through the office at the end of a long day of work and just quietly turning off all the lights just very quiet very simple very ordinary yeah and then one just keeps practicing and uh Sooner or later, uh, something interesting might happen in your practice. That's uh, that's sort of the 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 way that Saito talks about it. It's like they don't they don't talk much about awakening or cessation or, or stream entry on sort of publicly because I think for them those things are a bit of a distraction. But of course, when you're practicing in the Mahasi lineage, there is the background context of we are essentially trying to get people. Uh, they used to call themselves a stream entry factory in, in in Burma, apparently, not ironically. So there is a clear sense that they're trying to push you towards a particular experience of awakening and of cessation and of an upstream entry, um, which is the, the Theravadan sort of fr framework for the first stage of awakening, first of four stages. And when that finally came along on my third retreat, the main thing that struck me was, was how unremarkable it was. There was something extremely ordinary and st strange, yes, strange, but ultimately pretty unremarkable. It's almost bewilderingly un unremarkable about that experience. 
that was on my third retreat. It was the one where I said I, I, I went in with just an incredible sense of I'm just going to get it done. Uh, I, I gave myself basically, a, a, I think, almost five months to, if I needed to stay that long to, 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 do, to do the work. Um, and about the end of the fifth week, I had a very clear experience that I'm sure the teachers in Nepal would prefer you didn't know these things. Had, I'm sure they wish I hadn't read the book. But I do think that reading Daniel's book and reading other literature about the progress of insight and awakening, it did inspire me. It motivated me to, to keep going and to, to believe that it was possible and to really do the work wholeheartedly. And I was having a nice, uh, a nice quiet sit. The mind had become extremely relaxed. I was just kind of floating around. Like there was just a sense of not wanting to do anything but practice, you know. I would eat as quickly as possible. I used to spend, uh, you know, I, was, I used to spend as much as possible time eating just to kind of stay away from practice, you know, my early days. But at this point, I was just, you know, just humming along. Like it felt like really almost like I was being carried along by uh, by something bigger. But it feels like almost like my feet weren't touching the ground, just following the movement of the thing and having a, a very quiet sit in the hall. And I had a very clear experience of experiencing, then not experiencing, and then experiencing again. And when experience came back, it was quite remarkable that I hadn't experienced for a little while or that there had been no experience for a little while. And a little while is not quite the right way to say it because, well, <laughs> I won't say too much. But in any case, it was obvious that something rather unusual had happened. And a few minutes later, I was hit with a huge wave of relief, of bliss, of grief, of overwhelm, of an incredible sense of beauty, a sense of gratitude. I think a phrase that Daniel uses is, I mean, is this a Sam Harris quote, the sense of the profundity of existence bearing down on on you. Yeah, a real sense of something remarkable, important happening and gave a small report to my teachers and they seemed quite pleased and said, well, keep practicing. And of course, that's what you'd have to do. You'd have to keep practicing and spent basically three months. That, that retreat was four and a half months. That was the longest one I did. And, and I spent the last three months essentially continuing to practice, which in a way looks just like regular Vipassana practice, but the focus becomes developing the capacity of the mind to enter into cessation and to enter it for longer durations and then specified durations. And I didn't do this, but other people also practice in terms of how quickly they can enter into cessation. So it's essentially like a strengthening of the capacity of the mind to attain this very particular meditative state. And that just basically looks like doing more Vipassana and basically just getting extremely familiar with the progress of insight. I mean, literally just running the cycle of the fourth to the 11th insight knowledge over and over and over and over. I mean, it's almost like after that retreat and the two more after that, it's like I couldn't have known that territory any better. It's almost like until the map is tattooed on the back of your eyelids or something is how long you have to do it for. <laughs> so many different insights into different aspects of the Dharma. And it's like if the first few retreats were about depth, like just going deep, 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 deep into my experience and into the mind and the heart and the body, it felt like the next few retreats were just about breadth, like just widening, 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 widening. And so many levels and layers and understandings of causality and karma and and suffering and, and the way the insight knowledges are are like shaping everything and, and the way perception is working. I mean, it's the most subtle. I mean, honestly, things at this point that much of which I've sort of forgotten consciously, but still live on in, in me in, in various ways, like so many different kinds of insights while just the image of just sort of cycling, 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 which was at times fascinating, at times exhausting. And then in the background, sort of doing this practice, what's called aditana practice or practice of developing these cessations. And that's something that I don't think a lot of other schools do. I know they do it a bit in Burma, but I have not met any other meditators who outside the Mahasi school who have done this specific approach where they basically work on lengthening cessations. It's something that's only really, I, I might be mentioned in the Pali Canon, I'm not sure. It's for sure mentioned in, in the Vasudhimaga in some detail. Um, and so 
most of my next two retreats in Nepal, which were both three months, were spent um, essentially just doing that Aditana practice, which again, on the surface, looks a lot, almost looks, it looks essentially identical to the ordinary Vipassana practice, but with this sort of background where you're basically keeping track of the number of cessations, their duration, what happens before, what happens after. And there's very, very specific phenomenological criteria that seem to be more or less universal for people who have these experiences. And of course, the teachers are keeping track of those with the most astute detail. I mean, Saida Vivekananda, I don't know if there are others in Burma who know as much as him, but he seems to me like in terms of knowing this particular dimension of the human psyche, uh, I don't know anybody who knows more than he. And so it felt really rich and extremely fun to be under his guidance and sort of be going down this sometimes felt like he was a bit like the wizard of oz like he knew all the all the tricks and i was just sort of coming along for an adventure and his gift i think is uh making the the path fun where there's always a little he always dangles a little care for oh maybe there's a little more you can explore just keep going but he's, he's he has a great way of encouraging me and others to keep going in the practice and making it fun and, and exciting so I'm, I'm not sure how much of this part makes sense to, to talk about in too much detail because it feels like quite esoteric in many ways unless somebody's doing specifically this practice maybe just to reflect back a little bit in terms of like cessation I think from people who haven't experienced cessation and either are interested about it or yeah. are just hearing about it now I think yeah. there's a way in which I guess there's a couple of different schools of thought around it belief systems around it like some people it's like cessation is the the ultimate thing it's like that's totally. nirvana that it just feels good because there's nothing and that totally that to me has never made that much sense it's right. sort of like it's, it's like an experience that you can have in the whole ten thousand things right and if you really hate life you're switching it off <laughs> be quite <laughs> relaxing but yeah. to me it always seems like yeah that's not the thing but i think the thing that you were describing so nicely before and we talked a bit about before of yeah. we're not fused with the experience i yeah. think cessation has a huge amount of power to yeah. unfuse yeah. you yeah. in a way that's yeah. almost like carries a sort of universality to it you then go back through the cycles and end up fusing back onto different things as more challenging stuff comes up but it's it's almost like to use a metaphor it's like you're the software of a computer Mm -hmm. and then it gets turned off and then it's like that system sort of allows you to see that it's software that's running rather than just always being in the software and as it comes back on you sort of see different programs boot up and you're like oh i'm i'm (laughs) i'm this and i've got this program running and this program running and this and that sort of perspective is quite powerful i guess that's like if you are trying to get a sense of what the benefit might be or what it might be like I, I, i think that's kind of helpful and then I think one other thing to share just for the sake of balance I don't know how common this is whether it's just I guess my question is is it underreported because it's not considered a a thing or is it uncommon and that's that generally cessations are talked about as a really positive experience and for me Mm -hmm. the the coming back was often quite a really difficult experience it almost feels like being very attuned to the microphenomenology of my experience it, it feels like the mind layer really shuts off that's kind of like the software layer that shuts off and then it's almost like the heart does a big sort of like boom kind of as you come back and that often comes with all the things you described of like flooding with with peace and Mm -hmm. a range of heartful qualities and i i'm this sort of like have this big open heart that's often pumping those things out and it was almost like with the restart, I went a bit le- deeper or something and mm-hmm. really put me in touch with, like, compassionate burnout qualities of the heart. Mm-hmm. Of just, like, oh, mm-hmm. 
reality. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I just, yeah. I, it just somehow feels important to include that part of it as well. Yes. Yeah. So when you say that, I mean, this is where I get a bit. I, I know that I don't know what's happening. I make no trick claims to sort of universality or, or, or truth about these things, but I, I certainly know that in my own practice, and I know this is really a feature that also is something that you know I connect with Sayadaw Vivekananda about, depending on what substage your practice is in when you go into the cessation, mm-hmm. the way you come out is also colored by that. I, mm-hmm. I genuinely, of course, don't know what was happening for you. I know for me, sometimes coming back would be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I'd come back and feel horrible, feel mm-hmm. restless, feel hot, feel like I just want to suicidal i mean like really like not nice like mm-hmm. being back was a nightmare and so there was something also there about recognizing i mean track the thing you said before about the software finally being turned off mm-hmm. i think there's a way where you know there's so many different spiritual teachings and philosophies and this and that and look I, the reality is i i don't know what's true and i don't claim to know what's true on, on that level there was something refreshing about there being like an all the way off switch mm-hmm. like all the way there was just, there was just you know, any idea that there was maybe a universal consciousness or 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 a background awareness that was somehow gonna save, save me from it all or something at least this particular experience included nothing and there was something very very profound and simple about like it, it felt it felt like a knife that cut like all the way through the rope and it was like ah and something about experience itself felt just a little further away in like a healthy way like mm-hmm. like ah like experience is all of it <laughs> is yeah is software like i would say in a way it was uh, yeah the most profound sort of anatta experience the, uh, like a sense of like a really all the way non-self felt very refreshing and then you gotta be careful because there's something feeding you that experience as well what, what do you mean then you can get lost in the nothing is the truest thing. I think there's a way where that it did seem to me like that way for a while, where like the nothing is the true thing and the experience is not the true thing. Mm-hmm. I get, you know, look, I mean, obviously different schools have different beliefs. I'm actually not sure if that's really what most, you know, Orthodox Theravadan Buddhists would tell you. I, I don't really know, honestly. I think there's, I think there's just not coherence or not uh, consensus on mm-hmm. this topic generally. I do think there's a while where, where I got sort of in the mode of, ah, Nirvana is the truth and, you know, whatever the system Sara is sort of the relative or something. As you said, the, the dilemma is we live here. You, you can't just go hang out in, at least I can't go hang out in cessation for forever. So it's like the, the world is the place where the party's happening for better and for worse. Yeah, and it's it's also as the person experiencing it, you have an experience of non-self. But if you're watching someone else have the experience, you see the continuity of experience and of course uh, and causality and all of those things unfolding it's like those things don't disappear it's just the subjective experience yeah and so there's a kind of there's a non-self which comes from i as a person experienced no self and then there's like a collective expression of things being shown to people right and when you're in that more collective view, so if you imagine a meditation hall of 50 people in and three of them are experiencing cessation and three of them are in different stages, you know, and they're all in different stages and you're almost like just in the energy of those things being shown and delivered and, and that non-self, then yeah. it's like cessation is just one flavor of the experiences that are being delivered to people. It gets tricky because then I say like, and, and then who's experiencing that? There's a way where like that's 
is that now one person's experience or is that it's like the, the dilemma for me is it seems like experience is always being filtered through a node the, there's always a lens whether it's a personal lens or a collective lens like yeah it's almost like the that's the collective lens right and it's like not to say that that is the ultimate truth either <laughs> yeah if you're just only in the individual experience lens and then you fuse onto that cessation yeah 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 then yeah. you get a, a, a sort of a new type of verification around that uh, let's experience see, i mean I, I think i had some of this it feels like you totally you can get a bit nihilistic about existence exactly it, there's yeah, just a way yeah, where you yeah, start yeah. to deny the it's like well this is all just kind of and it's like this is sort of the dilemma with emptiness in general is that mm -hmm. people if you grab a hold of emptiness in the wrong way it's like yeah it just you, you sort of miss the point that life is of course right here in front of us and is very real yeah i guess what i would say is one it was just a relief on some level just mm -hmm. to have the sense of it was it was it was sort of like getting the joke at like a much deeper level mm -hmm. that itself was extremely rich I did. I wrestled for a long time, and in fact, I actually had a sort of a, a brief email exchange with, with Daniel about this because I was really like troubled by like how to make sense of how to relate to cessation. Because the Buddhists will tell you, or the Theravada Buddhists will tell you, it's it's the highest truth. You know, the Tibetan Buddhists will tell you it's nonsense. Like who to believe? And and I guess I've come to relate to it as it is a particular insight. It felt very important to have that particular kind of experience. It showed me something that nothing else had ever showed me before. I don't know that it's possible to learn specifically that insight any other way than just to actually have the experience. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it was very simple in one way, but it was also obviously very profound in another. So yeah, I'd say highly recommended. Well worth the effort. Oh, and that reminded me of yeah. one other thing I was going to say before I asked the last question. Yeah, yeah. And that is, again, in the name of balance, there was something really nice about what you were saying about the normalness of it and the unremarkableness, mm -hmm. which I really liked. Mm -hmm. And then there was something in me that really wants to balance that with a sense of also the sacredness and meaningfulness, mm -hmm. where it's almost like there's a bit of, when it's immature in you, it can become this sort of like sacred mania of <laughs> like what we're chasing the thing. Like I've definitely had enough experiences of that. <laughs> And it's all like super exciting. You think it's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. And then there's like mm -hmm. the normalness is a really important balancing factor yeah. for that. Where it's really just like grounded, includes the darkness, includes the difficulties. is just like showing up to daily life. But then there's almost like another level of that, which is I think that that level of like, yeah, rational calm is, is, is important. And also it's a bit of a symptom of if you go too far into that, it's like becomes nihilistic. Totally. and kind of overly rational and I think the sense of like everything being sacred or or things really connecting with things that are very meaningful mm -hmm. and sacred to you mm -hmm. and like really mm -hmm. being in touch with that sort of like personal just like beauty expressiveness mm -hmm. care kind of like spiritual desire wanting to, to live in a better world all of those mm -hmm. things and like mm -hmm. do, specifically doing those things is important. Yeah, when, when you say this, what comes up is a really lovely sort of quote that Saito Vivekananda would use a lot in Lumbini. There's a, there's a, an American scholar translator called Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the one who translated all the most recent iterations of the of the Pali Canon. And he's, he's done a bit of a commentary, but he, he's really known for being a translator, an amazing translator. He has a really nice quote. So so when you're when you're in those sort of deeper stages of observation and equanimity, what are called the, the seven factors of awakening. So mindfulness, investigation, uh, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, seven, start to really come on, online. And it's almost like 
the sort of the narrative is when you develop those seven qualities, they are what lead to the mind going into cessation. But Bhikkhu has this really nice framing where he's like, they are both the, I'm not gonna remember his exact words, but they're basically the means, but they're also what sticks around after. And it's like by having enhanced your yeah qualities to pay attention and to be curious and to sort of have life energy and to have joy and to have peace and to have focus and to have uh, acceptance. Like those are in a way like the legacy, I would say, of mm-hmm. doing this practice where it's like the mind is just more supple and there is more understanding of the comings and goings of good things and bad things. And it doesn't mean I don't fuse. It doesn't mean I, doesn't mean I don't get angry or hurt or frustrated or have all the full range of human emotions or lose mindfulness or whatever. But there's just some sense of like having gone on that journey. There is an imprint on the mind which does feel like more tender towards life. And yeah, maybe in the first few months, maybe the first few years afterwards, I was like a bit obsessed with the like, hey, about cessations. But as as time goes on, you're like, yeah, and you know, here we are in these bodies, in this world, um, with these emotions, with these thoughts, with these feelings, and trying to hold all of that in a in a more gentle way, and in a way that's more yeah respectful, and and uh, and I guess with more reverence. So I guess I see when you said all that, somehow I'm like with the way that that's I guess I experienced that as also being baked into the the, the journey of the practice. Yeah. So that was going to be my last question. What are the things that you feel have been benefited from doing the practice? And Mm -hmm. then also, I think it's useful to hear like what wasn't touched by the practice and, you know, needed a different approach. Maybe just to say from my perspective, there's a way in which all the things that you just described of like the not fusing and the open mindedness and acceptance and stuff like that. Those qualities are all incredibly strong in you Mm. i think the Mm. the capacity to just stay open-minded is something that i very much appreciate and admire and have seen and received from you yeah thank you so when i reflect back on it part of it feels quite far away there's a way where i'm like um the sort of level of immersion that i had in that world in in the details in like the micro 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 details of the practice and the progress of insight that feels quite far away now there's a way where if I reflect back to my teenage years, my early 20s, the time exploring with psychedelics, being a filmmaker, like there was a hunger for meaning, for context, like context for life, for existential context, you know? And I think there's a way where this practice really gave me an abundance of that. I feel well aware that if I would go back and do more, I would certainly <laughs> learn more and there'd be more to see and more to explore. But I, I guess I have a sense of having had, there's like a level of satisfaction, I feel, or a level of fullness, fullness in like a, in like a, uh, in terms of richness that I feel from having done it, like feeling more at home in the world, in the universe, understanding more intuitively the, the relationship between myself and the cosmos and the relationship between other beings and how we relate to each other and why life is difficult sometimes and, and like the comings and goings that challenge us and the ways in which we can't always control outcomes or have to sort of, you know, deal with uncertain outcomes. Something very macro for me. Feels like questions of purpose and meaning feel much quieter in me. And that may also just be a, a function of growing a bit older, like not being in my mid-20s anymore. More peace. I mean, ah, yeah. I mean, way more internal peace. Like, I, I think there's a while where I would, if I would answer this question, I would just say to people, honestly, I just, my inner critic is a lot quieter. And in a way, that feels like I'm oversimplifying. There's plenty more than that. But that feels important because there's a way where, one, I've I've had quite a strong inner critic. I have quite a strong sort of critical analytical mind. 
just a bit more gentle, a bit more gentleness with myself, with, with others, acceptance of the way that life is very hard sometimes, really a deep understanding or a deep ability to be in empathic resonance with people who are suffering deeply. I feel like I went through some phases on that retreat that were as close to mental illness and sort of full-on depths of despair as, as I can really imagine. And to have gone through that fairly consciously and to really be awake in the grips of that kind of pain is is no small thing for any for anybody. So I think when I see people really suffering a lot psychologically, there's definitely a, a, a tenderness in me around that. That's uh, that feels much much deeper. And I guess uh, a reverence for the bigness of the mystery. You know, it's like you know there are obviously meditators who have spent much more time than I, but a year and a half feels like well more than anybody else I know personally. And there's a way where the whole thing feels in many ways far more mysterious than when I started. Mm. And that was quite amazing. And I and I am very much in an accepting stage where I just realize I'm, I'm not going to get to the bottom of that mystery and nor would it make sense to really even think that I would. So I, I guess there's a level of contentment there, sort of having, having gone on a, on a very rich and deep journey. And I don't know what I don't know what will call me next. Like I, I genuinely do think I'd like to do another retreat at some point, but I, I don't have nearly as much of a sort of fire in my belly for it as I did some years ago. It feels like the initial urge has been largely satisfied and that feels quite, that feels quite nice. The pieces that feel like I needed to keep working on them. Uh, you know, I, I grew up an only child. I have a fairly solitary disposition in many ways. So there's a way where, you know, going and meditating on my own in a little cabin for a month on end was... That part didn't challenge me socially. I, I think in a way it was quite a comfort zone to be doing my own thing on my own in a kind of very contained way. I realized after about four or five years that I was didn't feel a lot more clever in the context of emotional intelligence with regard to being a partner, being a good friend, being a leader. There's a way where I felt like my sort of interpersonal skills were wanting a bit more attention. I started doing a practice called circling, which in, at the time I started, it felt like an absolutely perfect fit with Vipassana because it was essentially bringing all the present moment awareness that I had been building up for, for those years and just bringing it into connection with people, just saying, just literally saying out loud what I was seeing, what I was feeling, what I was perceiving, like just sharing it in those way where I learned a great deal by simply learning to be in connection with people in, in the process of feeling deeply and being, being aware of my own experience in a very intimate way. I explored stuff with movement. I did a lot of ecstatic dance. I did uh, some body-oriented psychotherapy. I've always... I've not always felt very at ease in, in my body or, or very, I've had a lot of shame about my body. I've kind of, I have kind of a, a large and lanky body that hasn't always felt very wieldy to me. So like, yeah, just getting more at home into my physicality has been a journey that, yeah, it's just different. When you're in Lumbini, you're doing everything in slow motion, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. It's not a very physically demanding experience. I mean, it's difficult, but it's different different than, than ecstatic dance. So yeah, embodiment practices have helped a lot. Relational practices have helped a lot. Being in some very rich and challenging relationships has helped quite a lot. <laughs> um, so it feels like there's a way where bringing, I guess bringing what, what you say, bringing the open-mindedness, bringing the heartfulness, bringing the sensitivity, but also the, the strength and the conviction, bringing those qualities that I sort of, I think, developed in the practice into the interpersonal has felt like something that I just needed to do outside the container of intensive vipassana retreats. I mean, that's 
pretty explicit uh, that, that it can't really be done on Vipassana retreats per se. So that has felt like the main focus for me the last few years and, and just setting up a you know practical life. I did, I did think pretty seriously about becoming a monk and there's a way where to some part of me, that is a very attractive way to live. Like the simplicity, the directness, the sense of the uncluttered It's just a very, you're focusing on one thing. And, and there's a part of me that really likes to do one thing very deeply. Uh, in the end, I saw that it really wasn't right for me. I just have too many other interests and too many other passions. And I'm just a bit of a rowdy character sometimes. So I thought better stay out of the monasteries. But I feel extremely grateful that I had the time, the free space, the, the conviction to do this. I mean, I remember at times I would tell you know, I would, aside, I would ask me, well, what are you doing with your life? And I'd say, look, I'm just a traveling, traveling yogi, just meditating. He would just say with a very sincere, he very sincerely would say, look, you're very lucky. You know, don't, uh, don't take that lightly. And he's right. I think the fact that I had the freedom to take that time to really explore to my heart's content is, uh, feels like a huge gift from the universe. And it's felt right to, to, to focus my attention, uh, in, in sort of new directions the last few years as some kind of, yeah, trying to round this being out. Nice. That seems like a nice place to end, unless yeah. there's anything else that feels important. Or... I think what the only other piece that comes up is, you know, I came back to the Netherlands and sort of started seeing if I wanted to do some teaching. I felt like oh, I've had quite a lot of experience at this point. I can certainly teach some beginners this stuff. Like there's a way where I know, I know the terrain fairly well. I think I'm trying to figure out how to communicate what I've learned because in many ways, I'm not really set up to lead people down the particular journey that I went on. If you want to go down that journey, just you should just go to Lumbini or, some, or somewhere like it. I mean, that's the perfect place mm -hmm. to do that particular journey. I occasionally meet people, I think especially young men, but also sometimes women, where I feel like, ah, like that's really the journey that I think is going to scratch that itch you've got. But there are others where I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure that's the thing for you. Like, I think something else might be the thing for you. And then how to how to hold the specificity of the adventure that I went on, this, the, the, the hyper specificity of the sort of esoteric knowledge that was revealed to me, this sort of technical way of seeing the unfolding of the mind that, I mean, unless you're deep in the practice, it just doesn't make sense to anybody else. And that's fine. I don't need it to. But there's some, I think, mystery in me around exactly how to make use of that knowledge best. I guess I have tried to just bring to bear the general qualities of open-mindedness, gentleness, compassion, you know, sternness when it's needed, directness when it's needed uh, that my teacher showed me in when I do some coaching with people or have done some some leadership work or some men's work or some circling, like try to bring those more, more human qualities to bear. And if somebody's feeling really curious about that old uh, Nirvana sensation thing, well, we can talk about that too, but you're gonna have to spend some time and, and effort to, to really to really get a hold of it. So it feels a bit like accepting that for the time being, much of the, the technicalities of what I learned are are not something that have a very easy place right now. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure they need to. I know that if somebody asks me about them, I can really light up and talk about them for quite a long time. But there's a way where those things don't help put food on the table, for example, or, or help people uh, deal with their relationship issues, at least directly. So yeah, I guess I'm still looking for a home for, for that piece of my experience. And that feels all right for now. I, I notice I don't feel a lot of anxiety around it. And I think that I would at some point like to unearth some of it and, and bring it a bit, a bit more to the fore again, whether that's through doing some more practice of my own or, or finding a way to share some of my experience, because I I certainly find it extremely interesting. I think there's a way where when I think about Sayadaw Vivekananda, I, th I think of him as this very wise sort of mechanic of the mind who's just sort of waiting patiently for anybody else who cares as much about this thing as he does to come along and for to sort of to guide them and to teach them. And I think there's a way where he and I had a very, I experienced a very playful relationship. There's a way where we sort of, I think he saw that I was very keen 
to learn, keen to explore, keen to practice. There's a way where I think we had a very nice back and forth rapport. I think there was a lot of joy and inspiration that went back and forth in, in that in that relationship. So it'd be nice to pass some of that along. I certainly, if people have curious curiosities about practicing, I always try to tell them to go to Lumbini if they have the time and, and the space. It's quite a special place. And I imagine that that chapter will just sort of write itself as life goes on. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I think maybe reflecting, there's like two things that come up with that. I think the first, the general sense I've had throughout this conversation is a sense of uh, if people are curious, I guess from just the way you went on your exploration and your story and the way you teach, it's like an encouragement to just keep looking a little bit further to keep following the curiosity and whether that's like, yeah, going on a shorter local retreat or going all the way to Nepal for three months or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, but almost like finding the next breadcrumb on your curiosity trail seems to be the encouragement from you. Yeah, I think something we didn't say, I didn't say explicitly, but but is yeah, it's worth saying. It's like, I think if you haven't done a longer retreat before, it's hard to understand just how profound and all-encompassing the transformations that you will almost certainly go through are. There's a way where 100 hours of meditating over 100 days will yield completely different results than 100 hours of meditating done in 10 days. Just the momentum of the practice, I don't really have words for how, how different they are. It's like I, I just encourage anybody who has a bit of a practice going to try to just encourage, if you're curious and you want to, yeah, I was certainly led onwards by curiosity and interest. And I, you know, if that has your attention as well, I'd say follow that. That That's a lovely thread to follow. Just challenge yourself to see if you can stitch a few more, whether it's hours or days or weeks or months of practice together. There's a sense of every time I get to Lumbini, you know, I think after a few days, all right, now we're really practicing. Now we're really humming. And then you get to like week two and you're like, whoa. Okay, no, but now we're really practicing. <laughs> and then after two months, you're like, no, 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 no. Now we're really practicing. <laughs> it's like there's a way where that just would keep going. It's like the level of complexity and richness and detail would just keep going. And, and it's almost like there is a kind of linearity to like, whoa, like we are really firing on all cylinders now. And so I just try to feel like I encourage people to really, to give themselves the, the opportunity to, to just see how far the rabbit hole goes. Because my impression, it goes... Uh, pretty far nice yeah the other thing was around teaching and i think there's a way in which you and i have taught some things together so we did it we've we've done some for personal retreats in which i was there as the heartfulness injector <laughs> and then also we taught some shared emotional practice together and in that i think i really valued yeah it's almost like the qualities that came out of your practice mm. you can bring as a sort of balancing force or it's almost like a different portal into the same material or something Mm. and there's a way in which that specific portal that you kind of open through your own practice then becomes valuable in different settings that can be bringing a new angle or bringing something fresh or showing people a certain way of seeing things relating to things Mm. and yeah I think I've just valued that aspect it's almost like as a person who's practicing you're kind of following the the breadcrumbs of your curiosity and then it almost is the same as a teacher in a way it's Mm. like Mm. you've got this big sort of portal that you've opened and then you're just kind of following the the pull that that creates i guess if anybody listening to this feels like they end up wanting to chat or have questions or 
wants to reach out to ask about practicalities or there was a period in my life where I had a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of of different practice centers especially in India Nepal Sri Lanka Thailand I was just really on the yogi trail so I think my knowledge is probably now a few years outdated at this point but if anybody's looking for a place to practice and has the time and space to head out to to Asia or is looking for a place in in the states uh, as well certainly you can share my information. I guess people can can find me. I can talk about this stuff for hours. So if somehow this has inspired you to reach out or ask questions or just want to connect, I will welcome a good Dharma chatter. Well, it's very, very specific technical progressive insight. Hyper, questions. hyper specific. <laughs> Preferably sub, sub Nyana questions are preferred. <laughs> no, but I can definitely talk, I can definitely talk, talk shop about progressive insight for hours. So yeah. Cool. Ph- phenomenology is... Uh, is the new sexy. (laughs) Nice. Thanks for listening. If you would like to get in touch with David, I will put a link to his website in the podcast description. Bye.